how could that how could China and India have been so dominant for so long if geog if they had a disadvantaged geography that mm. just doesn't make any sense the height of their mountains didn't suddenly change it didn't happen that in the 16th or 17th century they said well that was a good geography for a thousand years mm. now we're going to shrink all the mountains and change the landscape and uh, now it's your turn western europe yeah. that doesn't happen it's the same geography it's the same climate Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Safi Bakal. Safi has been an entrepreneur in a past life and built a biotechnology company. And he saw something while he was building this company about the nature of innovation and the nature of innovation within groups and organizations. And then he brought his biology training into it and started to apply a framework that he got from biology onto organizations, which are essentially biology because we're all humans, right? Uh, and really interesting book, highly, highly recommend it. Um, this is my discussion with him. We go a little bit into creativity and stress, but I ended up just kind of interviewing him about the book uh, and the insights in the book. Uh, one of the, my favorite things about reading is that, reading a book specifically, is that it offers you a chance to revisit ideas over and over again as you're reading the book. And so when I interview an author or somebody else who's read the book, uh, it's a chance for me to basically have spaced repetition on the ideas uh, in the book so that I, they solidify in my, in my mind and hopefully in your minds as well. Um, so hopefully you enjoy this episode. Please let me know what you think. If you do like it, please find us on iTunes and subscribe. Uh, we're also on Stitcher, Spotify, and I'm starting a new blog, on, at, which you can find at stuartallsop.substack.com. Uh, really interested in what you think about this episode and the other episodes I've got. Uh, thanks. Have a great day. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, my guest here is Safi Bakal. He is the author of Loon Shots, a former physicist, the CEO of a biotech company for cancer drugs, and he also worked with the Obama Council of Science Advisors. Really interested to have you on the show and really dive into deeply into your book and everything you have to say about creativity. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Delighted to be here. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really interested because I read your book and there's so many cool things that we can talk about. But the most interesting thing that I have that I'm, I want to get into is your experience because it seems like you're writing this book from personal experience, nurturing loon shots in an organization, creating, a, creating um, cancer drugs. Is that correct? Yeah, I started uh, – it started – from my experience working in uh, biotech and medical research in um, starting a biotech company developing cancer drugs, and then uh, personal experience was just a few years after I had started. My father got diagnosed with a rare type of cancer, and I figured, well, this is my field now. I can solve this. You know, yeah. I can, yeah. you know talk to people and get the best meds in the world. And uh, I did everything I could, but of course, you know, fortunately I couldn't help him. And he uh, died probably within about a year of being diagnosed, which is pretty typical for advanced uh, leukemias. And over the years, I got more and more surprised and frustrated noticing that there were so many promising breakthroughs by passionate scientists 
in all over the industry, whether in large companies or small companies or academia that were just sitting stalled. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because of the, you know, typical silly stuff that you see in the news that, you know, they're bad people and they don't want you to have these drugs. Everybody who works in the industry that I've spent time with has a relative with who has been through some severe disease or a friend or a loved one. And everyone wants to come home and tell their spouse or kids or family about how they are working to cure cancer or change the world. So everybody's got kind of the same incentives yet, especially inside large organizations, collectively people bury really promise ideas, but it's not an individual thing. There's something that was going on that had to do with the properties of groups, not any one individual that kept blocking these promising treatments, these good innovations. And then I had friends in other industries, in film and in um, technology, and and they experienced the same thing, that individually people would be excited about a project or an idea, and collectively they would kill it. Mm. So I just got more and more curious about what could explain that weird, almost, paradox. Mm. And that led to some of the ideas in the book. And this is, I really love these types of ways of looking at reality because it takes away the judgment of human as good and bad, but really looks at the system itself, the system which created the circumstances and the incentives. Um, What do you think of that? Yeah, I think that's that's the underlying idea. And it's like, um, you know, you could start with a glass of water. Mm. You can stick your finger in and you slosh it around and the molecules are all flowing and liquid and loosey-goosey. And then uh, that's always true, except as you lower the temperature, when you cross 32 degrees, all of a sudden they line up completely rigidly. And there's no individual CEO molecules saying, okay, you need to slosh around at 33 and then be completely rigid at 31. Oh, wait, it's 33. Everybody slosh around. There's no... CEO, there's no culture, there's no videos, we're going to slosh around on Monday, (laughs) everybody be rigid on Tuesday. It's something about the structure changes the behavior of that system, and it has nothing to do with these cultural variables. You can think of culture as the stuff, the patterns of behavior that you see, like the molecules are sloshing around or the molecules are totally rigid, and structure is those small changes like temperature or adding salt to water, things that affect Mm -hmm. that pattern that you see that are hidden and not as obvious. And that's what was interesting to me. And it's interesting because fixing culture is very hard. Mm -hmm. No amount of, uh, you know, forcing people to watch two-hour videos and sing Kumbaya and hold hands together is going to change a culture just like, you know, a guy yelling at ice to just uh, loosen up a little bit is not going to melt it. Uh. But a small change in temperature can get the job done. A small change in temperature can melt steel. Mm. That's, that's what was so interesting to me. And as you say, it's not an individual thing. It's a collective property. Mm. For example, a molecule of water doesn't dis- isn't a liquid or a solid. It's just a molecule of water. And if you drop it into a glass of water, it's going to slosh around with all the others. And if you drop it onto a block of ice, it's going to freeze. 
Mm-hmm. So it's not about the molecule. It's about a collective property of the system. And nobody had really extended that in a serious way or in a thoughtful way to the behaviors of groups. Mm. So, you know, there's one level in which you can just, it's as, you know, you could take it as a metaphor, but metaphors are only, you know, are not that interesting. You can Mm. actually sit down, write down the underlying science of it, the underlying mathematics of it. You can understand why phase transitions happen and then show that whenever you organize a group into um, a, a team or a company or any kind of organization with a mission and a reward system tied to that mission, you create the two competing forces, stake and outcome and perks of rank mm. that, will, that will lead to ultimately to the idea of two different phases. And so you can get a kind of a more generalized uh, theory that maps you from a glass of water to a group of people. And it sounds a little crazy because, you know, everybody's different. You know, how can you talk about them as molecules of water? Um, fortunately, I ran a company for 13 years. And if I yeah. my HR guy about, well, let's talk about a glass of water, you know, a phase <laughs> transition, he'd look at me like I was nuts and, you know, justifiably so. But that doesn't mean that, you know, as it turns out, if you think through kind of real practical things you do in the real world in terms of how you motivate employees you give everybody cash you give everybody equity Mm. in the one case you're rewarding rank base salary in the other case you're rewarding stake and outcome and so when companies get very large when they reward rank you create politics Mm. and in politics you stab people in the back to try to get up the career ladder and that often means killing their crazy ideas. And mm. So when you reward rank, you create a political culture. When you reward outcomes or results or intelligent risk-taking, you create an innovative culture. So it does translate into specific things that are measurable and actionable in terms of how you think about the behavior of groups and incentives inside teams and companies that are surprising that on, you know, to some extent no one's and I ended up going through the literature of what's called org, org incentives and org economics, and no one's, for whatever reason, thought about it in this way before. And it, it's interesting because it gives you actionable things that you can do, these small little changes, like, you know, what you sprinkle salt in water. Why? Because, you know, when, the, when, it, when it snows and night, you sprinkle salt on your sidewalk. Why? Because it lowers the binding energy between molecules. It makes them less likely to stick together. So it makes them slosh around more. So it stays liquid rather than freeze up. Mm. What you can do when you quantify this a little bit more is identify those small changes to teams that make them more innovative. I'll give you another example. When you take raw iron out of the ground, it turns out to be a very weak metal. Mm. But if you sprinkle a little carbon, it becomes solid steel. Mm. If you have a little cobalt or tungsten, it becomes the alloys that you use inside nuclear reactors or jet engines. And so when you do this in a little more quantitative way, you can identify what are the equivalent small changes inside teams and companies that can create a more innovative operation. And that's what was interesting to me, the combination of a harder science core to understanding the behavior of groups and teams. Mm as well as like you can get some real practical takeaways. Totally. And so what, from what you just said, I got that 
one human being in one structure can act completely different if they're placed inside of another structure, which kind of makes sense if you look at history. So one question I have for you is, have you experienced that for yourself where you were in one, where you were in one culture or structure or system, uh, for example, starting a company where you were totally looked for, uh, you looked for the outputs of that company and then have you also been inside of a large organization, maybe even a large organization that had an unhealthy structure, an unhealthy system to it? Yeah, I can, I can tell you from, uh, and then I'll, I'll come back to my own personal experience, but mm-hmm. I, I can tell you the more, a very typical experience, because my experience was a little atypical, but more common experience is when I uh, started my company, I was in my um, early 30s. And so I started, you know, we were a two-person shop, me and my co-founder, and then we grew it to a couple hundred people. And uh, when you start off as an entrepreneur, or when I did, and it's pretty common, you hang out with other entrepreneur buddies, you go for beers, and you talk about how all the great ideas come from companies and entrepreneurs like yourselves, the startups, because we are, you say, well, you know, we are the true risk takers, and everybody at these big companies or these sort of risk averse people. And then you pat yourself on the back and have another beer. <laughs> the, then you kind of grow up a little bit. And as you grow up and you mature as a company and as a person, and you start interacting with these larger companies, because mm-hmm. of course you have to work with them. It's, uh, you, you need to cooperate. And then you spend time with these folks from larger companies and you realize they're exactly like you. They love the latest new gadget. They mm. really want to be working on something cool. They're really excited. So then you realize like, that's weird because they're just just the same as us. And then eventually you start, as you're growing, you, you start hiring, including from larger companies. And then mm. as soon as they land inside your company, it's like that molecule is now in a glass of water sloshing around. The, t- the suit comes off, the tie comes off, and they're pounding the table. <laughs> championing some crazy wild idea just like the rest of you and they become just like one of you so it it really struck me that uh it is so much like that glass of water it's not about the one molecule is risk averse or it isn't risk averse it will behave differently depending on the system Mm. and the structure that's around that molecule because then you take those same guys and i've seen it go in the reverse you take a very entrepreneurial person from the small company who's pounding the table you put them back inside the large organization the suit will go back on the tie will go back on and they'll sound like that risk averse person again so it's not about the individual it's something about the system and that's what was what was interesting in doing the research here was uh teasing out what those factors are and what are those properties of system and then what does that mean what are the kind of practical lessons Mm. that you can uh so what about, so uh, there's one thing that keeps on coming up in my mind, which is molecules don't have a sense of self-awareness of themselves in relation to the universe, but we as human beings have the specialized awareness or consciousness of us, of ourselves as a sense of self that is stable and um, goes throughout time. Uh, is there, and then this kind of goes into my next question, was, which is, does anyone actually enjoy being in the risk-averse environment? 
because you say that once they move from the risk adverse environment into the startup thing, then they can kind of go like water and everything like that. But does anyone actually enjoy that? And they're actually more comfortable in that risk averse. And maybe this gets into the soldiers that you talked about. Yeah, that's a good question. So the, the first one I get is like, how can you possibly compare molecules hmm. in glass of water? They're all identical with uh, humans. Well, it turns out that's a property in science called emergence, when you have properties of the whole that don't depend on the details of the part. So although it's true that all humans are different, there are so many properties of collective, when you put a lot of people together, that don't depend on those differences. Just like a glass of water or any fluid will sa satisfy the same laws of fluid dynamics, even though they're not perfect fluids, they're every different kind of fluid, they're millions of different kinds of fluid with millions of different kinds of pieces, stuff flowing around them, yet they all flow. When you bend a glass of water, the water will always flow, the liquid will always flow in the same way. So you think about a highway, cars will have two phases, there'll be smooth flow and jammed flow on a highway, yet the underlying drivers are totally different. And the cars are totally different, yet all highways will exhibit these two phases and exhibit a phase transition in certain very predictable ways, even though the underlying people and drivers and cars, their Hyundais and Fords and Toyotas and trucks and buses are totally different. Just like in a glass of water, there may be a million different type of molecules and pieces of dirt, yet whenever you bend the glass over, the water will always pour out in the same, in the same way. So... There are certain collective properties of the whole that don't depend on the details of the parts. For example, that's essentially what economics is. So markets obey certain rules or properties. There is supply tends to meet demand in certain predictable ways. Prices tend to adjust in certain predictable ways. Yet underlying that are humans that are buying. You go to a, you go to a, bakery and you buy some bread and the other guy doesn't like bread but he wants a bun and the other person does you know wants a cupcake and this mm. guy's going to a butcher and he wants some chicken and he wants some beef yet at the end prices always adjust in the same way even though the underlying details and the behaviors are different so mm. as i mentioned no one has really applied that to the behavior of groups inside teams and companies and that's was uh, kind of fun to do to see that there are these collective properties. Mm -hmm. In fact, innovating well is a collective property. It's not an individual property. Mm. And then the question, do you know anybody who actually enjoys that, that being in that risk averse environment? Well, the, uh, the, an example that I often use is that there are the individual matters and the system matters and, one way to think about it is, um, let's, you know, pick a disease, let's say diabetes. On the one hand, genes matter. Certain ge genetic mutations can give you a higher predisposition to diabetes. But if you drink two gallons of Coke a day, you're also going to bring it on. So both matter, both the genes and the lifestyle matter. And in this case, people can have a predisposition to liking, for example, my wife likes things really ordered and on time and structured, and I tend to be a little bit more loose and, <laughs> and kind of spontaneous. 
And uh, there's a, clearly a certain predisposition to that. But that doesn't mean that the system does matter at all. Both things matter, both the individual and the system, the individual predisposition and the system mm. matter. Mm. That's so interesting because it, it's going to be a hard one to express. There's a, a question that I've always had since childhood. Me and my f- best friend would get together and talk about history. He ended up being a Stanford, Stanford history professor. And, and we would always talk about whether how much the individual mattered. For example, somebody like Napoleon, somebody like Peter the Great, somebody like um, uh, Stalin, and how much the collective system that they were underneath mattered. And so this was always the debate, and, and, and it's kind of a matter of opinion, really, which one matters more. And it, that gets into the same thing about nature versus nurture and um, uh, system versus the individual. Um, and I guess you already answered this question, but what are your – and well, let's get into this on the global scale, because what I love about your book, which I was not expecting, was at the end – you start to go into and applying this to large groups of people and nations. And you kind of have a retort to Jared uh, Jared Diamond's book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, um, and a few other people, Yuval Harari, who who have kind of given these big macro, why the West won type of explanations for, and you give a really good one. Can you talk more about about that, about your, how you adopted this theory to nations and states? Yeah, so, you you know, the, we start with what happens when you form a group and uh, you create these incentives and it's clear that there are two phases, one in which you're embracing wild new ideas and one in which you're focused on discipline and execution and hierarchy. And those two phases aren't compatible. You can only be in one phase at a time. A glass of water can't be solid and liquid at the same time. Although I actually was talking in front of an audience recently and someone raised their hand and said, well, what about a Slurpee? (laughs) Just, you know, for the record, a Slurpee is a glass of very sugary, kind of disgusting liquid, to be honest, with particles of ice suspended in it. And it's not an equilibrium. That ice is melting. If you wait five minutes, it will be all disgusting liquid. So what I mean is you can't be in two phases in equilibrium at the same time. Uh, and of course there's, you know, we go into the, uh, at the company level, what you need to do about that, because in order to survive as a company, you have to be, you have to both deliver your products on time, on budget, on spec to customers consistently and create wild new projects, products, ideas Mm -hmm. before your competitors do and wipe you out. So you have to do both. So kind of the, the, the first, um, you know, I spend most of my time talking about the answer to that, life at 32 Fahrenheit, right at the edge of a phase transition where both can coexist. But to get to your question about world history, the way to answer that is to step up one meta level from the company to an industry. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you go into nations. So to step up to an industry, you can think about, let's say, the film industry or my industry, biotech, drug discovery. So let's start with the film industry. The film industry has separated. You have the majors, the Columbia, Universal, Paramount, Disney, Sony, and the minors, the tiny little Hollywood production shops. That, Just like in a company, you talk about separating the artists and the soldiers, working artists work on the crazy ideas and the soldiers focus on the, mm-hmm 
discipline of execution. In the case of the film industry, biotech industry, and quite a few others, those industries have separated into the majors and the minors, and in some sense, the soldiers and the artists, or the suits and the creatives. And they're in different kinds of organizations. The large ones are global, and they are skilled at navigating franchises and opening films in you know, 15 countries at the same time, and regulations, and selling tickets, and cross-selling, and theme parks, and land deals. And they have the skill to do that. Mm. which obviously the small ones don't. And that's important because you need the revenue from those franchises to fund all those crazy ideas because most of those crazy ideas fail. So then the crazy ideas don't do very well inside those organizations, which are in the rigid execution phase. They do much better in the small phase, the, the kind of the, the equivalent to the water or the liquid phase, these tiny little companies that are totally focused on these crazy ideas, the ho small Hollywood production shops. And so you have partnerships between the two, and that's how the industry survives and thrives. That's why the industry is sustainable, because if it was just franchises, no matter how much you like the Avengers or Batman, you know, you're going to get tired of it. And then the industry will become stale. And if there was no franchises, it was just everyone working on wacky movie projects, the industry would go bankrupt, because most of those lose money. Mm. So you need both, just like so a company... And in biotech and drug discovery, it's the same. You have Merck, Pfizer, Novartis working on the next statin or the next ulcer drug, and you have the hundreds of small biotechs uh, here in Boston or San Francisco or San Diego working on crazy ideas people said will never work. And so you need both. Mm. Now, in world history, why the West? The problem with the, the, the geography answer, the climate or geography answer, which was one of the kind of a thesis of Jared Diamond's uh, and, and many before him. So the geography explanation has appeared and disappeared for mm. on up and down for, you know, five, four or 500 years. It started in the eight, yes, 18th century with Hume and others about the mm. climate hypothesis. Well, it's too hot down there. It's too cold up here. It was just right in the middle. Mm. The problem with that hypothesis is that China and Islam dominated the world. China, Islam, and India dominated the world, not for five or 10 years, but for a thousand years. They dominated the innovations, they dominated medicine, they dominated early science and technology. Most of the promising mathematics used in Copernicus in the early uh, 1500s um, for creating the idea of uh, modern astronomy, which really revolutionized the world and launched the scientific method. Most of those ideas and technology came from Islamic astronomers who in turn used mathematics developed in India. Uh, chi China paper and printing had developed a, a thousand years before the West as had you know, advanced mining, advanced irrigation, advanced agriculture techniques, the compass, the gunpowder, uh, water clocks. So many early technology, current, you know, cur the use of currency, the use of uh, an education system. So China had been educating a million, two million scholar mm. elites for th 700 years before the first university opened its doors in Western Europe. So why Western Europe? China, Islam, and India were well over 50% of the world GDP when you know, England was less than half a percent. And they had, 
and they had this geography yeah, they had the same geography problems but something else happened that explained it right so if your answer is well it's a geography how could that how could china and india have been so dominant for so long if geog if they had a disadvantaged geography that mm. just doesn't make any sense the height of their mountains didn't suddenly change it didn't happen that in the 16th or 17th century they said well that was a good geography for a thousand years mm. now we're going to shrink all the mountains and change the landscape and uh, now it's your turn western europe yeah. that doesn't happen it's the same geography it's the same climate the other reason that that those the other very popular explanation was culture there's something about protestant culture which was a very popular up and down explanation for a long time um and that doesn't really make any sense because in western europe there was a a, a very wide array of cultures there was you know catholic there was, there was a protestant schism there but there was a very broad array you know these were hundreds of nation states each with their own peculiarities and strange rituals and mm -hmm. ideas and values same thing with india same thing with china it wasn't a monolithic mm. they just had a huge distribution of cultures and ideas and there were only short periods of times they were all ruled by you know one kind of culture which ended up changing you know china got taken over by the mongol empire this is a totally different culture mm. so the culture explanation doesn't really make sense because also the chinese culture there wasn't one Chinese culture, there wasn't one Islamic culture, there wasn't one Indian, there were many, and they were all completely different. China and India and Islam were completely different from each other. Mm. And so the cultural explanation doesn't make a lot of sense, it's pretty unsatisfying as well. What does make more sense is the following. China, Islam, and India were huge powers. As I said, Western Europe was kind of a backwater. Mm. China, Islam, and India were phenomenal at franchises. Mm. It's like Columbia Universal make the next Avengers and the next Transformers and deliver that very effectively in their theme parks and gen generate a ton of revenue out of it. Or, you know, Merck, Pfizer, Novartis deliver the next stat and generate a ton of revenue all over the world for it. China developed phenomenal agriculture, uh, irrigation techniques to populate a landmass far bigger than all of Western Europe combined. They built the Great Wall. There was no comparison. They mm -hmm. built uh, advanced mining techniques. To, they built the Grand Canals. With the, they invented canal locks. That technology did not exist until hundreds and hundreds of years later in Western Europe. Mm. China, Islam, and India. You know, in India, they built the Taj Mahal. There was nothing like that in Western Europe. China, Islam, and India were world histories majors mm. they developed franchises feeding millions of people very effectively mm. but they were very bad at nurturing loon shots an example of a loon shot is the idea that the earth goes around the sun rather than the other way around that's a crazy idea mm. that idea been around for thousands of years and the, that idea is a pretty threatening idea because if your rulers tell you that the world is one way, and people say, well, actually, we think we can measure for ourselves. We think there are these things called laws of nature, and the truth is something that's accessible to everybody. Mm. That idea is the democratization of truth. Mm. It's very threatening to rulers. Mm. 
that idea, which is now known by its more modern name, the scientific method, mm. was in some sense the mother of all loon shots. It radicalized, it disempowered authority in saying what is true. That idea thrived in 17th century Western Europe, plus or minus, because 17th century Western Europe was like the biotech market of world history. Mm. It was like the hundreds of Hollywood small production shops of world history. China, Islam, and India were the dominant majors, and the hundreds of tiny fragmented nation states was the loonshot nursery where crazy ideas could appear and disappear. So when Copernicus, for example, first suggested the idea that the earth could go away around the sun, it was dismissed as crazy and ridiculed for 80 years. Mm. Because if the earth is rotating really fast, why aren't birds flung from their nests? Mm. When I throw up a rock, why doesn't it land behind me? Uh, and, then, and, then, uh, and then he was, the, the, I remember this from your book, Copernicus was, I believe, in Denmark or he went to Denmark which one was it that he, he was in Denmark and then he left because they, they, they said, no, this idea is stupid. But then that was the beauty of Europe is that he could just move to another nation state. Whereas if somebody came up with that in China, there's nowhere you can go to get outside of the rule of Chinese government. Yeah. So that I know exactly what you're thinking. So it's a great point. It's, it's actually, it's so much like a running a biotech market or a Hollywood film production you know, market that it, it's almost funny. So when Copernicus suggested his idea, he was in northern Poland, uh, in a town near Krakow, and uh, no one took him seriously. And the Catholic Church actually first encouraged his ideas because they mm. thought it could be useful for timekeeping and calendars. But it wasn't particularly useful or particularly practical because he didn't really make a lot of progress in showing that it was better than the old system. He designed it to be the same as the old. So it wasn't, it was just kind of a kooky idea. And most people forgot about it. Nobody paid any attention to it or took it seriously, except a small group in a small town in Germany, the little university where they said, oh, we think there's some things here that are interesting. Obviously not his crazy idea that the earth moves, but maybe the other planets move around the sun in some sort of interesting way because hmm. that explains some weird stuff. So they sort of kept that going, even though his idea had died in this one area. Now what you're thinking of is what really transformed and launched the scientific revolution, which then led to experimentation, which led to combustion of gases, which led to the steam engine, which led to mm. you know, the Western Europe taking over uh, the world and defeating China, much bigger powers like China and India, was in the late 1500s, Tycho Brahe, who was in uh, Denmark and had been given a small island off the coast of Denmark, and he was a Danish nobleman, and the Danish king had said, uh, hey, you're doing some interesting stuff. Let me give you some money. I'll give you this land, and you can go ahead and build an observatory. And he started building a really good observatory and started measuring things and saying, well, you know, the stuff that I'm seeing doesn't really fit this 2,000-year-old model of astronomy that everybody's been doing. Obviously, this guy Copernicus was kind of crazy, but I have my own theory about the planets moving in a very different way around the sun. And he was really starting to push his theory and making some progress until uh, the old king who was his supporter died. And then the, a, a young king, when he was a, a teenager, took over 
and told Tycho, uh, well, you know, why don't you come and pay your respects at the castle? And Tycho said, oh, I am the greatest astronomer in Europe. Why don't you come visit me here? <laughs> and the young king was like, are you out of your mind? I am the ruler of this land. I gave you that land. I am paying your checks. Are you kidding me? You are my subject. What is your freaking problem? I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. You know, not the exact Danish. <laughs> See these letters and read the translations. And the guy's like beside himself. I am the king. What are you talking about? And uh, Taiho, by then, as you can imagine, gotten kind of a big head and was sort of full of himself. Anyway, the young king fired him, took the land, and Taiho was out of a job mm. and had no observatory. So uh, in an empire, when China, Islam, it turns out something similar had happened in China 500 years earlier with a great Chinese astronomer named Shen Ko. And... That was the end of Shen Ko's career. He was, you know, he had the similar ideas to Tycho five hundred years earlier, five centuries earlier, but he was put in exile, actually locked up, and then eventually forced into exile, but not in Europe. Mm. In Europe, he lost the Tycho lost the support of the King of Denmark, and so what did he do? He bummed around from castle to castle of friends of his mm. until he found some other guy willing to support him. In Prague, King Rudolf II of the, from the, in, in the, what's now the Czech Republic. And he funded the observatory, and that's where Tycho continued his measurements, and that's where he brought Kepler, and that's where Kepler discovered, re-kind of invented Copernicus's theory into a much better theory that worked that ended up really launching the scientific revolution and led to Newton's work a few and, years, decades and, later. And this kind of seems to go into what... Steve happened to Steve Jobs and why Steve Jobs is such an interesting uh, example of this was you talk about uh, people who are successful at one type of loon shots, the P type of loon shots, the product type of loon shots get kind of a big head and they get into a Moses complex where they, uh, where they create, where they, where they kind of get on top of the mountaintop and yell to people saying, this is what we're going to study. And this is, and then that happened to Steve Jobs really early but then he had the opportunity, the the both the opportunity and the difficulty of having, getting, um, you know, a really difficult situation where he gets kicked out of his own company that he created and wandering through the desert like Moses, I guess. Uh, well, no, I guess Jesus was the one wandering through the desert. But uh, and then and then comes back learning these lessons that allows him to uh, come back. Can you talk more about this? This gets to my point of the whole show, which is not everybody, but a lot of people go through a lot of stress. Uh, and this stress is both a challenge and an opportunity. And without the stress, they wouldn't create what they're what they create. Yeah, and it, it can actually tie it back to just the, the sort of the end of that Tycho story, which is that uh, Tycho was put in a very stressful situation mm -hmm. by being kicked out of his uh, island and his home and his castle that he'd had and the observatory that he's built and he was just wandering around and the big breakthroughs that ended up changing the world happened in that last year he had only one year of life left by the time mm. he found his castle he you know died about a year later mm. but in that one year he brought kepler and that really launched everything and the reason it's so s similar in, a, in kind of a funny way in biotech there are all these hundreds of biotech companies and you might be a CEO and you might have an idea and you might be very excited. And then your board gets tired of you. 
or your board withdraws funding, just yeah. like that Danish king, and you're done, and your project is done, and your company is done, but it doesn't mean it was a bad idea. The idea just hops around to some other one, just like uh, a mm. film project, Slumdog Millionaire. You know, I had the idea of this crazy film of like an, uh, a kid from the slums of Bombay gets on a quiz show. Like who's going to, that's what all the studios said. No one's, no American's going to want to see that. Mm. And it got moved around from studio to studio until one finally took it and then boom, it succeeded. And so the reason those crazy ideas flourished in Western Europe was because it was a loon shot nursery. Mm. The same reason the crazy ideas flourished in the biotech market, the same reason they flourished in the film market and the reason they didn't in China, Islam, or India was because they were world history's majors. Mm. The same reason that Merck, Pfizer, and Novartis rarely come up with their big breakthrough projects. Mm. Uh, oh, uh, that's the connection with kind of world history and mm. a different take than the standard, you know, there've been over a couple hundred years, the why the West question has appeared many times and the, probably the three most typical explanations are geography, culture, and race actually was very popular in the 16th, 18th century. But all of those uh, really don't make any sense. And you've got a new one, which is, uh, which is the system. The systems that, or how would, you, how would you describe yours in a very short way? I said Western Europe was the loonshot nursery of world history. Yep. Mm -hmm. It was... It created an environment that was much better for nurturing crazy ideas, mm. big empires. Mm. So, uh, and I, I want to get to this, this, this subject of like really intense stress and maybe even if you've experienced it, but there's one example in your book, which is amazing, which is this guy who comes up with this new theory. I'm forgetting his name now, but he comes up with this new theory of how cells communicate and uh, cancer cells communicate. Um, and that, that he proposed a new one. Maybe you can kind of explain this, but nobody believed him for 32 years. And he, but he's just, he just stuck with it. And even though everybody's calling him an idiot, he, he eventually huge breakthroughs kind of happened. Can you talk more about, about this guy and his name? Sure. That was Judah Folkman who I worked with for, I would say the, roughly the last seven years of his life. He worked uh, with us at our company. He advised mm. us as a board member. And he was uh, a pediatric surgeon. He was a terrific uh, star surgeon. Uh, he became actually the youngest head of surgery at Boston Children's Hospital, the youngest surgeon ever in Harvard history. Oh. And in his early uh, 30s, actually, I guess it was his late 20s, he came up with kind of a wacky idea. He had been operating on patients and had always been surprised by the fact that, uh, and this was at the time, that whenever he operated on someone who had passed away or who had lung cancer, there were, these tumors were covered in blood. Mm. There were lots of blood vessels around them. And eventually he designed an experiment and showed that if you, on some models in the lab, if you don't allow the blood vessels to feed tumors, they'll stop growing. And he had sort of a eureka moment. He said, well, wait a minute. Maybe these blood vessels secrete some mysterious substance that tricks the body, the host tissues, into growing new blood vessels, into feeding the tumor, into supplying mm -hmm. oxygen and nutrients so that the tumors can grow. 
And he said, look, without, without those pipes, without the oxygen and nutrient, the tumors would never grow. Mm -hmm. So he said, I've got a crazy idea. Let's block these signals. And it sort of, it seems like a very plausible idea when I'm telling it to you now, mm -hmm. but at the time he was dismissed as crazy. And because at the time there were only two ways you treated cancer. You either bombed it with chemotherapy, which is just like ingesting poison, mm. or you burned it with radiation. So either way, it's like a shock and awe. You try to bomb or the idea that tumors secrete some mysterious substance and you can inter interfere with that mysterious substance was considered crazy. Remember he, he said, he, he, you know, there was one postdoc when he gave a talk who came up to him and was sort of depressed about, you know, oh, I'm not making a lot of, getting a lot of traction or support for my idea. And he told her, listen, if you want to see rejection, I will show you pink slips or denials from grant committees with the word clown in them. <laughs> he was literally, well, you know, called a clown. He was ridiculed for 32 years. And in fact, the, he was asked to resign from his position as chief of surgery because the ideas were supposed to have, were considered to have so little value. Mm. So uh, he persisted for about 32 years until in 2003 in Chicago, the results of a large clinical trial for a drug that was uh, developed based on his ideas were unveiled. One of the largest clinical trials were on colon cancer. And they showed the largest survival ever seen in colon cancer for patients mm -hmm. who received his drug. And that transformed the field. It transformed the field in ways that people in the field today don't, still don't fully appreciate. Because number one, it did give a new, new class of drugs for treating cancer, which was very important. Mm. But number two, no one had believed that you can target these mysterious signals, that there were mysterious signals that the tumor was talking to the host tissue and tricking it into growing blood. No one believed that. He turned that around. And now every project in cancer is based on that idea. No one really develops chemotherapies anymore. They're all based on interrupting signaling. Whoa. And, and three, it turns out he had another idea, which is that there are certain forms of blindness vision loss in the elderly, especially that are caused by overgrowth of blood vessels. So he said, well, if I have a drug that can block blood vessels, maybe I just inject it into the eye. Mm. And it turns out it was the best drug ever created for reversing blindness. So his mm -hmm. drugs have helped literally have helped blind people see. And so for 32 years, he was rejected and called uh, all sorts of names. Uh, I had the honor uh, and privilege of working with him. Uh, people, many people to this day, I've talked to you know Nobel laureate scientists in medicine who don't quite appreciate uh, what he's done, which is how, somewhat amazing to me. Yeah, how does somebody like that kind of deal with deal with all of this? I mean, I guess you just kind of develop a thick skin. Have you experienced that same type of where you you're you're just so convinced that some idea is right um, and that over and over and over again, people tell you, no, you're wrong, you're an idiot, you're a clown. How does somebody deal with that? Well, there was two things. One, one lesson that I learned from him I call uh, 
LSC, listen to the suck with curiosity. Hmm. And here's what I mean by that. Normally, if you are an entrepreneur or a scientist or a creative or a designer and you have some project or some idea and you pour your heart and soul into it and someone tells you it's a stupid idea or investors walk away from your pitch or a partner you know, pulls out at the last minute, you tend to dismiss, you go on the attacking mode. You say, these guys are idiots. Uh, they don't know what they're doing. I'm right. And that's a very common reaction because you put your heart and soul in something. You're very defensive. But what the really great uh, scientists and people who come up with really important ideas and succeed in getting them through, what they really, I've seen them do over and over is they set aside that defensiveness and they listen to the bad news with curiosity they take off their defensive hat and they put on a sherlock holmes hat mm. rather than say you're an idiot or try to punch a guy in the face they say walk me through your if you have the time which i realize you know most people don't like to give feedback there's no mm. upside in it for them it's a very difficult thing to do so listen, if you have the time, it would be a great favor if you could walk me through your thinking. Mm. Help me understand what it is about the product that doesn't appeal to you. What is it that you doesn't make it something you want to invest in or partner with? Just walk me through that. And you do totally like a detective, like you're looking for a clue. And that's where the gold is. Because then if you pull on that thread, eventually you may get a little nugget of gold which is the idea of what it is that's missing in mm. your product that's mm. turning off people. Uh, sometimes they may be right and sometimes they may be wrong and that doesn't matter. You're looking for the gold. And so the best, you know, that's something I learned from Judah, the best people like him who mm. really come up with a major breakthrough, just set aside, you, you know, maybe you have hurt feelings for, you know, a day or a week or whatever, but then you move on. And you go back to the source and you say, help me understand. Can you walk me through? It would be a great favor if you gave me this gift of helping me see. Because, you, you know, everyone gets blind and has, gets blind spots to mm. whatever it is that they're working on. And it's really only with the external. Mm. So he did that. I remember there was, an, you know, one occasion where uh, some lab had tried to reproduce his results. He, you know, they said, look, this is really interesting. You published his paper, very promising. It had made some, you know, gotten some good press. And could you send us some materials? We want to reproduce it. And they failed to reproduce it in their lab. And so they talked to a reporter. And then it made a, you know, a national headline. <laughs> Famous cancer researcher, you know, unable to reproduce, unable to reproduce the results in his lab. Mm. And, you know, that is a career-ending headline. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't usually happen. You know, you can't reproduce your results. And so most people would, you know, would have reacted or can't, uh, by going on the, uh, you know, on, the, uh, on the offensive, like these guys don't know what they're doing, blah, 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 blah. Judah didn't. He called up the other lab and said, can you walk me through how you did the experiment? Mm -hmm. Let's just, you know, let's just sit on the phone, take it, go step by step by step exactly what you did and in doing so he tracked down a weird bug which is that when his product his proteins were being shipped they froze them down and when they froze them down and being shipped 
there was some leaking between the plastic and the protein that mm. damaged the material. And so it was simply the shipping process. Oh. When they reshipped them good material, it works. And other labs came around in support of what he was doing. So he learned, but that not only taught him to solve that problem, it gave him all sorts of interesting new ideas that he wouldn't have had otherwise. So LSC means not just listening to the suck, meaning, you know, if you're trained in active listening, it's about, okay, let's repeat what the other guy just said. Let's nod your head, mm. you know, to show that you understand. Um, it's actually probing. Mm. It's saying, you just said X. Well, walk me through uh, until I really, really understand what you're saying. <laughs> and that's useful. I found also in personal life, yep. not just professional. Let's say you are in a uh, relationship. Yeah. And, you know, men and women often speak different languages and come from different places and sometimes can react emotionally to different, uh, you know, to conflict situations, to different interests, to different objectives. And if you just start raising your voice to, you know, this kind of crescending battle of who can speak louder over the other person to repeat what they just said, mm. you end up going nowhere fast. Mm. But if you flip it around and say, let me listen to the suck, what's the problem here? But let me not just listen and it repeat, mm. but say, help me understand until you can totally, completely repeat their argument better than they could ever formulate it for themselves mm. in your own language, then you've really understood it. Mm. And once you've really understood it, once you've listened to the suck with curiosity and have really understood it, that's the green light. That's when you can begin to make progress. That sounds like it's something that I can use in my interview process as well, because that's I do a lot of active listening, but if I could actually active listen and then dig into really deep until I fully understand what somebody is saying, I think that would be helpful. So, so you've written this book, Loon Shots, and I, you know, I, I see it becoming a, a big book that kind of stands the test of time. What, what is next? What are you going to do next? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I've just, you know, I've been in a cave for three years and it's sort of, you know, going into deep dives in you know, whether it's World War II history or aviation history with the Pan Am story or even film industry history film industry history to Thomas Edison and the birth of Hollywood and mm. the rise of movies or um, all these uh, uh, research of which, you know, I, I used, it was a little overkill because, you know, in the end you're looking for one nugget, one, you know, use 0.5% of it, but to be accurate and interesting, mm. you have to do all the, all the stuff around it. Um, so I'm just kind of emerging from the three years in a cave. <laughs> you're in a phase transition. I'm talking to human beings for the first time in a while <laughs> yeah. and uh, seeing the light kind of blinking and getting my bearings. And I think I've been surprised by th the reaction has been kind of interesting. So, yeah. I, you know, it was not a big surprise that businesses, business leaders and managers have really come out in support of a new way of thinking about, mm. it, you know, it, it has an equation derived from first principles. There aren't, really a lot of business books in history that have mm. an equation uh, derived from first principles. Um, but also friends of mine who are in the film industry, friends of mine who are artists, friends of mine, you know, lawyers, uh, doctors, uh, bankers, people who are just generally curious about history, about physics, about 
how the world business and how those three might intersect by one idea told through full mm. of story. So one thing that's happening now, I, I guess I'm not allowed to say a ton about it, is mm. uh, there is a film series in uh, development uh, where each episode is diving into loon shots. In the Very particular cool. Vertical, loon shots in cancer, loon shots in warfare, loon shots in diabetes, loon shots in climate change, loon shots in energy, mm. and so on. And you know, one past story, one present story, one a couple of future stories. Mm. And that's actually, so I've been working on that for the last month or so. That's, that's actually a lot of fun because you get to learn about mm. loon shots in climate change, loon shots in energy, loon shots mm. in all sorts of stuff. Mm. And I've, uh, you know, I've just been getting all these calls, like, just a like, ton of inbound uh, calls people in the from so many industries from the military mm, uh, mm. because it's a number one priority for the military now from the office of the secretary of defense to the mm. Pentagon and they've been very clear publicly that the military needs to change mm. and innovate faster and better uh, because the pay, the pace of innovation has enormously increased in the last just ten years, and you know while in the past we could have survived if we started a war behind as we did in World War II, we were far behind Nazi Germany in critical technologies, and we caught up in time. Mm. But we may not be lucky again because the pace is so. Fast. Rapid. Yeah. We don't want to put our soldiers on a battlefield and be surrounded by machine learning robots that annihilate them in a few seconds. Well, this is the interesting thing that I get from your book and from other sources, which is essentially that this, the, this, so, you know, China was the first big power and then India and Islam and then, uh, you know, and Europe took over and then it moved West. And then even within the West, it moved from New York uh, and DC to power centers in San Francisco and now we're kind of facing this either it's, it looks like it's going back to China, but then in the same way, it also looks like it's kind of decentralizing. You have the internet that is now a layer on top of humanity that is now starting to spread ideas and spread power and spread influence, uh, um, uh, not vertically, but horizontally. So it seems like we're entering some sort of new stage of, or have already entered some sort of new stage of history where the rules might be not be the same kind of linear move west but more of a kind of a flattening or something like that um that's a possibility <laughs> but one thing that misses is the critical mass effect huh. so while it is the case for example in biotech that every town and practically every town with more than ten thousand people says we want to be a biotech hub mm. Mm. um it isn't the case there are you know three big biotech hubs in the US. Uh, I mean, the two biggest are Boston and San Francisco, and then San Diego is has mm. got a very strong uh, presence as well. But there is a critical mass effect, which is if you want to build an industry, you want other people in the industry around you, especially if you want to build emerging companies, many of them fail. So people who want to join an emerging company want to be where you know, there's another company down the block because if they lose their job here, they can go to another one. That's why, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you're a biotech guy and you graduate from, you know, university in Kansas, uh, you can mm -hmm. stay in Kansas, 
But if you go to Boston, there's hundreds of biotechs as opposed to, you know, maybe three. Mm. Or if you, the one that you pick goes belly up, there's still more. And so for the same reason, investors go to Boston because they invest in a lot and they want, there's lots of employees and there's lots to choose from. And there are a lot of ideas. If this thing doesn't work, then that thing mm. might work. So there, there's a benefit to critical mass. There's a benefit to, there's a network effect. And that's why those industries coalesce in certain mm. physical geographies. So although the internet helps spread ideas everywhere, if you want to build something, build an industry, there still is a critical mass effect. I think you're right for cases like biotech and things like that. But I think software now, particularly now that remote work is becoming more accessible, more interesting, I think for things that don't require that type of in-person collaboration that biotech seems to be seems to require, um, I think for those things, it can actually spread out. But I wonder which ones things are actually amenable to that and which ones are not. Yeah, I think, for example, if you're building an app, mm-hmm. an iPhone app or something, it's really, you know, it could be a, a, you know, it could be a one-person effort and you can hire developers in Estonia or Russia, you know, or wherever and get your app built and then your app just goes in the ecosystem of mm. Apple's uh you know, Apple's closed ecosystem. And so that you could kind of do anywhere. You don't, you know, to produce that particular product, you don't need a large team. To produce a biotech product that generates revenues, you, you need hundreds of people. Mm. Uh, to produce a computer, a technology, you need hundreds of people working on the same chip or product or hardware. And so, there are probably small pieces of software, small self-contained software application like an app mm. distributed anywhere. But if you're doing Amazon Web Services or Microsoft Azure or mm. Windows Operating System, there's a reason that that's concentrated in Seattle. Mm. Although GitLab, I think GitLab is a new example of something like that that is now distributed. Um, they're a whole wholly distributed company that is building actual like type things like Azure and things uh, like other things that are now totally distributed, which is really interesting. Good. <laughs> well, cool. Uh, so really happy to have you on the show. We should probably uh, um, wrap up now, but how can people find you to talk about more, find out more about the book, find out more about you? Uh, go to my website, Loonshots dot com or social media my twitter handle is just my uh full name cool thank you so much for coming on the show and and yeah best of luck with the book and everything comes thanks thanks for having me it was fun to be on well i hope you enjoyed this episode if you're listening to my words right now i imagine that you listened to the whole thing and i hope you enjoyed it please let me know your thoughts uh if you liked it if you didn't like it why not send them to me on twitter at Stuart allsop diet Stuart Alsop, I, 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 on Twitter. Yeah, and also I'd just like to let everybody know that I publish episodes every Monday morning and Friday mornings on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. You can find us on Crazy, at Crazy Wisdom. Uh, really appreciate a, a, a five-star review, or if you don't like it, a one-star review, whatever, whatever your thoughts on it are. Um, yeah, and find us on at stewartalsop.substack.com as well. And yeah, I'm doing this, you know, no ads. Um, I've been doing this for a year and a half now and uh, really enjoying it, loving putting out this content. Hopefully it's changing your life for the better. That's my aim. That's my goal. Um, Have a great day.